So this evening I'd like to reflect on the theme of the judging mind, the inner critic, the inner tyrant, whatever we would prefer to call this phenomena. In the story, Siddhartha sat underneath a Bodhi tree, and in the form of Mara, or forces of delusion, was assailed with all the arrows of restlessness, aversion, craving, doubt that we've talked about. And in reality, it is the story of all of us. It's the story of the way that Siddhartha met his mind and heart and everything a mind and heart could do to keep him mired in confusion and fear and a sense of imprisonment. And he saw clearly that only as, he, as long as he allowed these forces to intimidate him did they hold the power to deny the freedom he longed for. And that when he stopped being intimidated, when he was able to look Mara in the eye and stop fleeing and say, I know you, to say that so simply, I know you, did Mara loosen its grip? Now, this story holds not only our story, it also holds the essence of this teaching and the essence of mindfulness. That all the things we struggle and battle with, the things that we resist, that we regard as problems or obstacles or personal failures, that they remain that only as long as we remain intimidated. And that without that fear, then these problems, obstacles, in our lives, in ourselves, in truth, do become the classroom of our awakening, just as they were for Siddhartha. It's where we learn about the art of compassion and balance, of freedom. Where else would we learn these lessons? Lying on a beach in the Bahamas? Where everything around us is perfect? I doubt it. Now, the story of Siddhartha meeting Mara, many of you have heard many times, and you probably notice that there's one outstanding visitor, one outstanding obstacle that is never mentioned, that never seemed to visit Siddhartha, and that is the visitor of the judging mind, the inner critic, with its ongoing song of self-blame and shame, contempt, belittlement, that really shadows the lives and the hearts, I think, of many people. So many of you speak about the judging mind that accompanies you through your day, condemning and fault-finding, comparing, such a familiar presence that it may be even hard to imagine a life that is free of it. Such a familiar 
visitor that it almost, the inner critic, the inner judge almost seems to be a sort of central, integral part of who we are. Now, for some of you, this may be a completely irrelevant topic, so please feel free to take a nap right now. <laughs> but my suspicion, you know, my suspicion is that self-judgment is all something so easy to relate to, something so painful. It's almost like I think of it as our kind of contemporary ascetic practice. You know, 2,500 years ago, people used to lie on beds of thorns. (laughs) We do self-judgment. It's a way that we can torture ourselves. And surely something that causes so much pain really can't be exempted from our practice. Much as much of our path, as much as our path is about contemplating our body and mind, about sitting and walking, I think the truth is that if the inner judge, the inner critic, is not really attended to in the light of awareness, it ends up coloring and distorting everything that we do in the practice. We just become a slightly more mindful judge. So you have a new enlightened vocabulary. You know, I'm not peaceful enough. You know, I'm not calm enough or I'm not still enough. So it's just got like this whole new arena to play in that it never had before. Now, before I sort of turn the attention towards looking at the judgmental mind, I think what's really important and so crucial is to make this distinction between the inner critic, the inner judge, and our capacity for discernment or discriminating wisdom. Because, you know, I think for many people who practice, it, it's like it's kind of like the worst spiritual sin to be accused of being judgmental, isn't it? I mean, you know, nothing almost worse. And I think sometimes people are so afraid of being accused of being judgmental or being judgmental that it, it can have the effect of disabling discriminating wisdom and the wise action and the wise choices that all of us need to make in our lives born of discriminating wisdom. And if we're afraid of discriminating wisdom, you know, it just becomes a prescription for passivity and, and for disengagement. And most of our lives, our world surely doesn't need passivity or disengagement. I mean, it is discriminating wisdom that got us here. It's discriminating wisdom that gets us out of bed in the morning rather than just putting the pillow over our head for another two hours sleep. It's discriminating wisdom that leads us to engage in the world, in, in engaging with injustice, with inequality, with, with oppression. It's discriminating wisdom that leads us to reach out to another to bring about the end of pain and harm. Sometimes it's discriminating wisdom that teaches us to be silent rather than to shout, and sometimes to speak rather than to be silent. It brings us back to sit and walk rather than hanging out at the pizza parlor in Barry. 
in a, a dubious pleasure in any case. But, <laughs> but it is what keeps us showing up even when everything seems impossible. In fact, every wise act, every wise word, every wise choice we make in our lives that leads to the end of suffering, every, every act that draws on ethics and, and compassion, discriminating wisdom really teaches us to find the Buddha in ourselves and in others. Now, the judgmental mind is something entirely different. I mean, we might still get out of bed in the morning. We might still sit and walk. We might even still (coughs) show up. But every step of the way, we're kind of berating ourselves and scolding ourselves and telling ourselves how stupid or inadequate or unworthy or what a schmuck we are and not good enough. And judgment, that inner judgment draws not on wisdom. It doesn't draw on the Buddha nat- on our Buddha nature. That judgmental uh, mind is drawing on Mara. It's drawing on aversion and ill will and fear. And it's rarely, it's rarely is the inner judge the source of wise action or thought or speech or choices. And most importantly, the judgmental mind really doesn't lead to the end of suffering. In fact, it is suffering, and it compounds suffering. And we see how all sense of worthiness, of goodness, of possibility that exists in us all is to a very large extent simply suffocated by that voice of the inner judge. So discriminating wisdom is entirely necessary, useful. The judgmental mind is optional, and it is pretty much entirely useless. Aroshi Kennant, a Zen teacher, and said that the training of liberation begins with compassion for the self. That to cultivate the non-judgmental mind is to open the door to a heart of generosity, compassion, wisdom. So the real question is, how do we open that door? What does the non-judging mind actually look like, because then we would surely like to have one. What does it mean to be free from the inner critic, to be non-judgmental, to put that sniping voice to rest? And I would even encourage you, for those of you who feel particularly burdened by the inner judge, really almost to take that as a koan, as a question into your practice. What would it look like? to be free in that moment of the inner judge. And I would certainly encourage you to imagine, truly imagine the possibility of that voice really being put to rest, really coming to an end. 
I think to, to really understand what the end of the inner judge looks like, we actually need to turn our attention to the judgmental mind and to embrace its painfulness with the same painfulness that we would bring to a pain in our body, uh, with, with the same mindfulness that we would bring to a pain in our body, with the same mindfulness that we would bring to the pain that we see in another person. You know, the Dalai Lama once said that if you want to know what compassion looks like, look into the eyes of a mother or a father as they cradle their ailing, sick child. And in some ways, it's, we need to learn how to cradle the inner judge with just the same compassion. Because it is the tormented, the lost, the confused mind. And compassion is really about learning how to listen to the cries of the world. And we are surely part of that world. And this compassion is really also the essence of mindfulness, allowing us to see and to understand and to find freedom in everything that seems intractable and impossible. And mindfulness really is a a present moment experience concerned with embracing and understanding the entirety of each moment with tenderness and with care and with warmth and with interest. And in, in the light of that engaged attention, we might discover that it is actually impossible to hate something we truly understand, including the judgmental mind. And perhaps we might see that the greatest barrier to compassion and freedom is not the pain and the suffering and the adversity we all surely do meet in our lives. But the greatest obstacle and the greatest pain is this ongoing tendency to judge, to, to be critical, to inflict tremendous harm upon our hearts. Because to, in many ways, what the inner judge does is it, it hardens our heart to ourselves. And in armoring our hearts to ourselves, we armor ourselves against the possibilities of love and wholeness and freedom. In a way, we, we kind of close the door to our own Buddha nature. So we learn to look the inner judge, the inner critic in the eye, not not to be intimidated, but I think in a very real way to open a dialogue with self-judgment, to just open a dialogue with self-judgment, not just want it to go away, although that's surely human, but to understand it and to really understand what this, this voice is really teaching us. And in some ways, you know, it sounds really weird, but I could suggest that the whole of the path and all of the wisdom and the compassion we seek for can actually be found in understanding the judgmental mind. What would it be like to get up in the morning, to sit and to walk, with the sense that every single thing we're being asked to be to find, to understand, 
is going to be found in this mind, in that voice of condemnation. Now, none of us, it seems obvious, none of us are born with a judgmental mind, although it might seem that way. (laughs) It is learned and well-practiced behavior. It's learned and well-practiced ways of seeing and relating. And because it is conditioned and learned, it can, in truth, be unlearned. And it's not just about feeling better about ourselves, although surely we'd all like to feel better about ourselves, but to actually see that the judgmental mind is, in truth, not a truthful mind. It's not a clear or a truthful mind. Because the, ju- the inner judge is simply not able to see the entirety or the wholeness of anything. So it's not a mindful mind. The judgmental mind is really born, and its nature is to seize upon particulars. My body, my personality, my appearance, my meditation... Its nature is to seize upon particulars and then to mistake those particulars to be the truth. Now, I think that just because a judgmental mind isn't listed in one of the hindrances or one of the obstacles to freedom, it certainly doesn't mean it wasn't around 2,500 years ago. You know, if you read the discourses, sometimes your ears ring with, you know, the level of of kind of inner judgment that's flying around. And I I read you something really disgusting. So feel free to be disgusted and not to take it too seriously. But, you know, here's something from one of the discourses. It's a person speaking to another person. It says, you bag of dung tied up with skin. You demoness with lumps on your breast. The nine streams in your body flow all the time, are vile smelling and full of dung. And a monk desiring purity avoids your body as one avoids dung. Now this person clearly had a bit of a hang-up about dung, but... (laughs) Apart from that, it's kind of like not that kind, really. I mean, it's like, jeez. You know, and then somewhere else in the discourses you hear, you hear someone saying, meditate on the unconditioned. Get rid of the tendency to judge yourself above, below, or equal to others. By penetrating deeply into judgment, you will find peace. By penetrating deeply into judgment, you will find peace. Now, I'd like to look, I'd like to kind of unpack or try to unpack the the judgmental mind, the inner judge. Look at it another way, and and I know you're going to start to think that Rodney and I are absolutely obsessed with the hindrances, but here I go again. Hmm? And the judgmental mind, one way of seeing it is that it is actually not one hindrance, but it is a compound of hindrances. If you get really take one moment, just really look at one moment where the judgmental mind is operating, and you can see like the winds of all the hindrances flowing through it. 
First of all, in the judgment, in the inner judge, there is craving for sure. And craving takes the form of all the expectations, the shoulds, the ideas we hold about how we ought to be. Quite frankly, there is no judgment without this companion of expectations and ideas of what should be happening, how we should be, how others should be. There is, uh, and, and judgment is often really what we're experiencing in judgment, is the pain of feeling that we have failed these expectations, that we have failed to meet our ideas of perfection. In the judgmental mind, certainly you see restlessness and anxiety how, how generating so many emotions and thoughts around that fear of failure and around that fear of imperfection and all the ways that we strive and struggle to meet our shoulds. I mean, shoulding is part of the inner critic. There's a lot of shoulding. Certainly in the inner judge, it has its own measure of aversion and ill will. It's kind of like an equal opportunity hindrance. In that aversion and ill will that gets directed towards our body, our minds, our emotions, our meditation, pushing away what is, with blame, but not just pushing away, pushing away with blame and shame and belittlement. And certainly you see the, in the inner judge, the hindrance of doubt, doubting our capacity for goodness, our capacity for beauty, doubting our capacity to change. And perhaps the only hindrance that really doesn't make an appearance in the judgmental mind is the one of sloth and torpor, but dullness. But actually, in truth, I think this, even this hindrance makes a kind of disguised appearance in despair despair and numbness and resignation, or sometimes if we just get so exhausted by the cycles of inner judgment, quite frankly, we just numb out. Now, and of course, but that's not all what's happening in the inner judge, it's the hindrances, but holding them all together, there's something else that is happening that is really important to see, and that is self-view. I mean, hindrances without self-view are just winds, but self-view turns those winds into a kind of hurricane. Self-view in the forms of the beliefs about who we are and who we are not, and how that self-view continues to fuel the aversion and the craving and the restlessness. So this really is our, our task and our invitation to understand this compound, to, to loosen its hold, to, to rediscover, actually, all that is beautiful and possible and true in ourselves, and to release and to let go everything that is fabricated. And self-judgment is a fabrication. It's a fabrication of misunderstanding and delusion and confusion. You know, Thomas Merton once said that the essence of the spiritual path is a search for truth that springs from love. 
And that search for what is true surely begins with our willingness to question the fiction and the ideology of brokenness and incompleteness. Because this is all that the judgmental mind speaks of. It doesn't speak of wholeness. In the Sufi tradition, it's said that if we want to discover what is true, let our thoughts pass through three gates. At the first gate, ask of your thought, is this true? If it is, let that thought pass through that gate. At the second gate, ask of that thought, is this helpful? Is it necessary? If so, embrace it and let it pass through that gate. And at the third gate, ask of that thought, is it rooted in love and in kindness? And that last question is perhaps the most important of all. And my sense is that that self-judgment fails at all three questions. Not true, not helpful, not rooted in love or in kindness. So we can see that, and yet still it seems to have a life of its own, doesn't it? It seems to have a life of of its own. So what is it that keeps the judgmental mind going? Certainly, as I mentioned, the hindrances play their part in that continuity because what you see really is self-judgment is actually just a thought. But it's a thought that is laden with ill will and aversion. So that's one of the things that keeps the judge going is the ill will and the aversion. You know, take, a, for example, you know, maybe it's probably happened to you, maybe not so extreme, but, you know, you fall asleep on your cushion. And, you know, maybe you fall right off your cushion or you start snoring. Now, do you meet that moment when you wake up? Do you meet it with compassion and generosity? You know, it's really not much of an event. Pick yourself up and, and you know, and begin again. Or, or does this all-too-familiar cycle of suffering begin? First, the shame and the blame. I'm clearly useless and terrible at this. Hopeless, stupid, unworthy, bad, wrong. And now everybody knows it. And we have this whole rich vocabulary of ill will. I mean, just think of our vocabulary of ill will. It's remarkable. You look around you, everybody else is sitting like a Buddha, of course. (laughs) Better than me, better yogis, getting somewhere, they've got the right karma. And to really see often for the self-judge to operate, it invariably, inevitably needs something or someone else to compare ourselves with. Either we are comparing ourselves with our own expectations of how we should be, our self-imposed ideology of shoulds, our mythical ideas of perfection, or we're comparing ourselves with someone else. Now, the moment that energy starts, you know, oh, I'm such an idiot, Doesn't craving often begin? I'm going to strive. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be a better meditator. Get all agitated. You know, we're hardly relaxed in that moment. 
How do I become more perfect, create more shoulds, more idealized, more craving? Really, just so tiring. You know, and, and you really see how you know craving and then that agitation and dullness and doubt, that they kind of go hand in hand. Or we start telling ourselves that familiar story of impossibility. I should just go home. You know, really, I, I can't do it. You know, I should just go home. Everybody else can do it, but I'm just not worthy, good enough. And, of course, what's coming up, the group interview. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to have to sit there and listen to all those people tell their wonderful stories about how fantastic they're doing, and I'm just going to sit there and feel more and more crap every moment. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what actually happened? We fell asleep. You know, it's like really simple. We just fell asleep, you know. It's like I remember going to, we went to the opening of a, a new meditation room at a monastery in, in England a few years ago, you know, and they invited all these big fancy ajans, you know, from Thailand, you know, <laughs> the real big cheese, you know, and they were all lined up on the stage in these rows, you know, in their robes, and they're all nodding away, you know. And I'm pretty sure that not one of them had a moment of self-judgment about it. They were just happily nodding away as the ceremony went on. It's all the Westerners, all bright-eyed and perky and all that. They weren't going to fall asleep in the monastery, you know. <laughs> just like, end of story, they were tired. <laughs> they were just tired, you know. So they were nodding off, like, big deal. End of story, simple fact. It's also true that, you know, in reality, in this imperfect world, we all have difficulties one way or another. Yet the moment that we get lost in this endless symphony of judgment, of being angry or despairing, we're actually taking refuge in deluded beliefs of who we are, rather than taking refuge in the Buddha within ourselves. We're taking refuge in a house too small. I'd like to read you a a poem. It says, "When, when your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes, to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your womb tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn that anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. The cycle of aversion-laden thinking, hindrances, self-view, they can go round and round, you know, and they get harder and harder until they become a habit. It's like the inner critic has worn a groove in the mind. 
and, and the, the attention just easily falls into that groove. It has become a habit. It's like, as the Buddha said, you know, what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. If we dwell upon ill will or inner judgment, aversion directly inwardly or outwardly, it will become the shape of our mind until actually all that we see is that which is broken and flawed and impossible. You know, there's a saying in India that when the pickpocket meets the saint in the marketplace, <clears throat> all the pickpocket sees is the saint's pockets. Well, of course, what is missed in this habit, this habit of thinking, aversive-laden thinking, what is missed is everything that is sincere and beautiful and kind and compassionate. And it's really not about switching to affirmation, you know, to suddenly start telling ourselves, I'm so wonderful, I'm so perfect, I'm so free, because it's probably not true. You know, we won't believe it. We won't believe it. You know, it's like Suzuki Roshi once said, you know, everything is perfect and there's a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> and isn't that just the truth? You know, there's a lot of room for improvement. And, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to, to switch into a kind of affirmation that doesn't allow me to see what really I need to cultivate and nurture and develop and, you know, where that sense of nurturing is really important, you know, where I make mistakes, where I, where I make errors. I need to be able to see that with a considerable amount of honesty and kindness and to commit myself to, to understanding that and, and, and bringing about its transformation. But that, that kind of discernment, you know, that recognizing, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement, that can come out of kindness and compassion and intentionality which is something very different than just following these endless loops of blame and shame and dread. Now, the judge, the, when the judgmental mind is operating, it is really a clue that is asking us to look more deeply, to look beneath the thoughts into this more secret, sometimes more hidden inner world of belief and self-view. Kenneth Roshi didn't say that the path of liberation with, begins with having compassion for myself. It says begins with having compassion for the self, this sense of self that we are asked to have compassion for, not myself. Now we see that part of you know because this is where judgment grows, quite frankly, and. You know? It grows in this, this kind of ideology of myself, my individuality. You know, and part of this, quite frankly, is, is cultural. You know, I mean, years ago, you know, I remember the Dalai Lama being so astonished to hear about the burden of unworthiness and self-judgment that Westerners carried. And, you know, you know, part of it, I think, it's kind of like a cultural error, like a culture, cultural error that we sort of collectively subscribe to. You know, and I think part of that cultural error, and I, I see this with 
with so many young people, you know, when they're so anxious, so uh, feeling that their life is only going to be worthwhile if they've got something to parade in terms of success or, or, or credentials, as if, as if we can win and earn worthiness. That's a weird belief system. Now, what's really helpful, I find a great relief, is that I'm never going to have a perfect self. I actually know that. It's not possible. It's not the nature of a self idea to have a be perfect. I mean, it doesn't, it's not part of the package. You know, it's not going to happen. Nobody's going to have a perfect self. It's just not going to happen. I think that's a great, I find that very, li- very re- relieving, personally. I, I think that's great news. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? You know, you don't have to pursue that anymore, a perfect self. Can you imagine what that might look like? It's not going to happen. So, you know, you could sort of give up all that, that kind of striving, you know, right away. What do I mean by that? Something that is constructed and conditioned can never become perfect. Something that is dependent upon conditions, born of conditions, changed of conditions, including the idea of myself, can actually never be perfect. That doesn't mean that we can't cultivate all that is nurturing, all that is lovely, all that is healing, all that is wise, act out of concern for all beings, we can, uh, you know, aspire for Buddhahood. But this teaching really encourages us to look at myself as a fabrication that is born of confusion and misunderstanding. That the whole idea of myself is born actually moment to moment of what is clung to and what is identified with. And apart from that clinging and identifying, there is no myself. I mean, just think, how many selves have you had today? <laughs> Already. And the day's not even finished. You know, I'm tired, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm full, I'm hungry, I'm weary, I'm optimistic, I'm depressed. You know, I'm elated, I'm discouraged. How many have you had today already? It's, it's like probably, you know, at least 20, 30, 40, and, and there's plenty of time left in the rest of the day. Have a few more. And if you really look at that, how did you get that self of the moment? You were wondered, how did that happen? Born of whatever you identified with in the moment. It's why it changes all the time because of this sort of free-ranging tendency to identify and build something moment to moment. Now, what you really see is that myself is an incredibly unreliable and fragile creature, like all things that are born and fabricated. I mean, notice the moment that you got a good self today, you know, when you identified with something upbeat. You know, notice the moment you're, ah, you know, getting somewhere, you know. I was a guy, I was really good meditation, you know. 
and I'm pretty caring. You know, it's, it's, you know, I notice a moment you got a really good self today. How long did it last? <laughs> Didn't it just get knocked off the shelf like minutes later by something else that was, that was then identified with? Now, judgment, the self-judgment, really manifests this identification because it is born of identifying with particular thought patterns, particular feelings, particular belief systems. The story of judgment needs a storyteller, me. The story and the storyteller are co-joined, arising together. You know, the more I tell the story of self-aversion, the more real it seems. The more the, the, that story is told, the more it gives reality or solidity the sense of the imperfect me. This toxic marriage, going round and round, dancing together. And I think to be able to see that, just to be able to see that, can bring a tremendous deep relief that maybe there's another way of being. Like maybe, maybe, This whole torment of identification is something that can be seen and dissolved. Now, even wanting the judgmental mind to go away can be just more ill will. You know, we start to be judgmental about our judgments, don't we? Oh, I shouldn't be so judgmental. Only an awful person would be so (laughs) judgmental. Of course, it's part of being human to not want the pain and the sorrow of judgment. But you can't actually tell yourself to let go of the inner judge. You know, you didn't wake up this morning and decide, oh, I think I'll be really judgmental today. You know? I think I'll do a lot of grasping today. You, know? you can't just shout at yourself to let go. It's actually not even your responsibility to let go. Our responsibility is to cultivate the understanding that exposes these constructed self-views. That's what we do in the practice. We just cultivate the, the attentiveness, the awareness that exposes the fabrication of self-view. And to understand in the light of awareness how self-view, hindrance, and habit, how these three gather together and make their appearance in what we call the inner judge. We cultivate compassion for the sorrow and the pain, the confusion that is born of being so identified with this fabrication called myself. What's really, I think, we can start to see, you know, in the Pali, the language of this teaching originally, it's not a language of nouns, it's a language of verbs. So we actually don't have a myself. There's a process of selfing. And the process of selfing and the process of grasping or identifying are actually just different words for the same event. For the same phenomena, just like non-selfing and non-grasping are just different words for the same phenomena. 
And that, that's actually really important, I think, to understand. If you can, that selfing and grasping arise and fall together. That non-grasping and non-selfing are the same. So we don't actually say, let go, or, you know, let go of myself. You know, well, we, just, we just learn to see. We just learn to open the space. We just learn to bring the light of awareness. And the effect of awareness is that it loosens that contractedness. And it also brings the clarity to actually see that process of selfing and grasping moment to moment. And if you can see it, you don't believe it. You can just see it, you don't believe it. You don't, you just see through it. That, that kind of, as if something that has been so dark and so solid suddenly becomes so transparent that you can see through the fabrication, moment to moment. Now you see that the judgment arises and the place we see it is through thought isn't it? That's, that's how it kind of makes its appearance, these aversion-laden thinking. But just because, you know, in these aversive-laden thinking, you know, we may have had, it holds the baggage of our whole history. All the, the millions of times maybe somebody told us we were unlovable or unworthy, the million times we've told ourselves we are unlovable or unworthy or imperfect. It's like the whole history is in that aversive laden thinking. But just because you've had that thought 10,000 times does not make it true. It simply reveals what we are prone to grasp hold of, what we are inclined to seize hold of. If you take away the history from some of this judgmental thinking, if you take away the self-view, if you take away the hindrances, then you know what self-judgment is? It's a thought that arises and passes. It's a thought that arises and passes. Born and fades away. Just a thought with no intrinsic power to dictate our happiness or freedom. And this practice of mindfulness and insight, you know, we apply to the body and all bodies of experience. We apply to the mind and the heart and all experience. <coughs> but we also apply this practice of awareness and mindfulness to the body of judgment. We train ourselves in many things. You know, we, we train ourselves here in ethics. We train ourselves in kindness, in non-harming, an antidote to ill will and aversion. And, you know, I know it feels really effortful at times, that training. It feels really hard, but believe me, it's much harder not to undertake that training. Because to not undertake that training is to accept that voice of the inner critic as having a kind of permanent residency in our minds and our hearts. But I would also say that what seems so effortful does with practice become more effortless and you begin actually to sense the joy in that seeing and and the freedom in being able to see through those those fabrications and to be able to see a thought as a thought and to be able to see through that whole world of of self-view. 
some time ago, someone on a retreat who was suffering a particular bout of restlessness told me they were doing one of the things that restless people tend to do when they were reading the, ext- uh, the instructions on the fire extinguisher. <laughs> and the first instruction they read said, aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. <laughs> aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. Aim the nozzle at self-view. Imagine a life that is free of the inner critic. Imagine a life that is free of blame and shame. Imagine that. It really is a life of possibility. I'd like to end with another poem. It says, Above the mountains the geese turn into the light again, painting their black silhouettes on an open sky. Sometimes everything has to be inscribed across the heavens so you can find the one line already written inside you. Sometimes it takes a great sky to find that first bright and indescribable wedge of freedom in your own heart. Okay, just a moment quietly together. Time's a walking period before the last group sitting. <clears throat> 